Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, whether you are eight years old or 80 years old, four words that no one enjoys hearing are the words, I told you so, right? <laughs> the only thing worse than being wrong is somebody predicting you're going to be wrong, and then there, when you're wrong, to tell you, I told you so. We're 10 weeks into our series of first, through First and Second Peter, and this man, Peter, who wrote the letter that we have been studying, he was one of Jesus' closest followers. It seems like he was in the inner three. And uh, Peter had these big moments in his life. Peter was the one that actually walked on water uh, for a few steps before he got afraid and began to sink, and Jesus had to save him. Peter did some incredible things. Peter had this confession of faith. Uh, he seemed to know on some level who Jesus was before some of the other apostles did. But the thing I think Peter is most remembered for, maybe unfortunately, is his denial of Jesus. Imagine that your biggest mistake your biggest failure was talked about 2,000 years after it happened. Um, and it was one of the biggest I told you so moments ever. Because literally, here's the story. Um, the night before Jesus is crucified, he's with his closest friends, and they're celebrating, celebrating this Passover Seder meal together. And at some point in the meal, Jesus looks at Peter and says, before the rooster crows, which means before sunrise tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times. And, of course, Peter says, no way. I will, I'll die before I do that. And then, sure enough, he does it. And he has this great moment of sin and this great moment of failure. And in many ways, I think Peter thought it was the end for him. In fact, when the angels revealed themselves to the disciples or to the women um, on the resurrection Sunday morning, they said to the uh, women, go tell his disciples and Peter. And I always thought, why did they say and Peter? G Peter was one of their disciples because I think maybe because the Lord knew that Peter had thought he had disqualified himself from being a disciple. So just in case it wasn't clear, tell his disciples and Peter that the Lord is risen. And it leads us to one of the most beautiful scenes in the Gospels in John chapter 21 where Peter and Jesus are having breakfast together on the beach. And it's one of my favorite scenes in all of the Gospels because Peter, this is really one of his first times spending quality time with Jesus since he failed his Lord. And Peter is carrying this weight and this guilt and this regret. Maybe you know how that feels. And he stands before Jesus, and Jesus, in a painful, surgical, but restorative way, asks him three questions, and they're all, they're all the same. Peter, do you love me? And he asks him three times because it corresponds with the three times that Peter denied him. And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. you. Lord, you know I love you. And then the last time he says, you know all things. And Peter's coming to realize the depth of the sin in his own heart, but also the grace that is found in his Savior, Jesus. And in response to every single time that Peter says, you know I love you, Jesus says to him something like this, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. And Jesus was not a shepherd. He did not have actual sheep. What Jesus was using was a metaphor, a simile here, to say to Peter, you're not done for. You've not ruined yourself. You've not disqualified yourself. There's a work for you to do. And specifically, I want you to have the heart of a pastor who fights for and feeds and takes care of my people. Now, I wanted to start with that as the background for the text this morning because this morning's text is about as harsh as Peter sounds in both letters. There is a bit of angst and maybe anger in his writing here. 
And what I want you to know is that as Peter goes after the topic of sin, there's two things I want you to know about Peter. One, he himself knew he was a sinner. In fact, his sin was so public and so shameful that we're still talking about it this morning. So Peter's not writing about this as someone who thinks he's better than those who struggle with sin. But secondly, Peter's commission from Jesus was to take care of his people. And so I hope that in these words, you don't hear the voice of a judgmental spiritual leader, but you hear the voice of a man who is restored from great failure himself, but now has a pastor's heart. And he's angry because he sees what sin is doing to the sheep. And his commission is to feed them and to take care of them. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, Peter is writing specifically about these false teachers who are <clears throat> teaching uh, heresy in the church. And he says this, he says, These people are as useless as dried up springs or as mist blown away by the wind. They are doomed to blackest darkness. They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting. With an appeal to twisted sexual desires, they lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption, for you are a slave to whatever controls you. And when Peter escapes, or sorry, and when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it, and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb, a dog returns to its vomit, and another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. Pretty strong words from Peter. And what I want us to learn from this passage this morning is three things about the nature of sin. Three things about the nature of sin. And the first thing is this. Sin makes empty promises. Sin makes empty promises. You know, <clears throat> I read a statistic just this morning that the average American sees, hears 10,000 advertisements a day. 10,000 advertisements a day. We're the most advertised to people ever. And what are advertisements if they're not essentially promises, right? And we've learned over time that some of these advertisements are empty promises. That magical diet shake will not make you lose weight overnight. We've learned that, right? Spray as much of that cologne as you want. It's not going to make people throw themselves at you necessarily, right? Or... The burger looks amazing on the big TV screen, but then when you go and you drive through and you order it and you open it up, it looks like a totally different creation. Empty promises. And sin makes empty promises. And one of the sad things about, I think, our world and our culture today is that, uh, we're, well, because of all the advertisements, we are increasingly cynical and skeptical about truth claims. But our world is actually more skeptical today about the truth claims that God makes than the claims that sin makes. And sin makes empty promises. Peter uses two helpful metaphors here to help us understand that right at the beginning of this passage. First, he uses the metaphor of dried up springs. And in a desert climate, in a sort of desert world where this was written to in the Middle East, uh, to be traveling through the desert and to see a well in the distance was a promise. It was the promise of, of, of water. It was the promise of, of uh, sustenance. It was the promise of life. And then imagine in the midst of your great thirst, you get to this well and you look down and it's not filled with water, it's just filled with more sand. 
That's the metaphor that Peter is using here. He says, this is how sin works. It promises you one thing, but it delivers you something else. Then he says, it's like a mist blown away by the wind. What does this mean? Well, what Peter is saying here is that a mist represents what seems to be a storm cloud or a cloud full of rain, which was important in an agriculturally driven agrarian society. Rain mattered. Without rain, there, there was no food, there was no crop, there was no finances. And so, but there would be these, these mists that would come that would look like they were clouds full of rain, but then they, the wind would come and blow them away or blow them in a different direction. And the rain that they needed desperately never came. And so what Peter is saying here is that sin promises you life and uh, life-giving substance and substance and value, but it brings you nothing. And these metaphors reminded me of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 13, when he's trying to describe the way that the people of Israel have sinned against God. He says, my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, this is God speaking, they have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Now, a cistern was an artificial reservoir. It was dug in the earth, dug in the rock for the collection and storage of water, especially in a desert area. Cisterns were very important in the land of Israel because of there, was a, there was a long dry season and there were relatively few natural springs. But a broken cistern was worthless. Uh, cracked rock or crumbling masonry could only hold on to a small quantity of dirty water or no water at all. And God is saying, when you listen to the empty promises of sin, it's like, it's like going to a cracked cistern for water when I am the living water. Jesus comes on the scene uh, hundreds of years after Jeremiah and calls himself the living water. There's this really memorable encounter in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, where John is talking with this woman, this Samaritan woman, and, he, and they're at a well, and he says, the water that I give, you'll never be thirsty again. And then on John, in John chapter 7, he stands up in Jerusalem on the last day of this great feast, and he says, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. And Jesus himself is making promises here. His promises is that the water or the life that you'll find in me, you'll never thirst again. And anyone who is thirsty can come to me. And But sin makes its empty promises as well. Michael Lawrence says this. He says, this is what sin is all about. Sin promises us satisfaction, but it never keeps its promises. It can't because we were not created to satisfy ourselves. No, all sin does is blind us to the truth. We were made to find our ultimate satisfaction in a loving relationship with God. But sin convinces us to spend our lives in a self-loving relationship with ourselves or a selfish loving relationship with the things of this world. The tragedy is that in the end, it doesn't even work. It Not only does it not satisfy our thirst, it leaves us thirstier than we were to begin with. My friend Dan Williams is a pastor at North Central Church just down the street. He says it this way. I remember years ago hearing him use this metaphor from, from the fishing world. And he said this, when it comes to sin and temptation, the bait is fake, but the hook is real. The bait is fake, but the hook is real. Sin makes empty promises, and those empty promises capture our hearts. And it's been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. 
And that's why Peter here is so passionate about dealing with and addressing sin, because sin makes empty promises. The second thing that sin does that we learn from this text is that sin distorts God's gifts. Every gift is, that is good comes from God. God is the giver of all good gifts. Um, but sin has a way of twisting and distorting and perverting the gifts that God has given us. And the issue that Peter is dealing with in this letter is that there were false teachers who were preying on uh, people who were new to Christian community. Whether or not they were genuine believers or not is a matter of debate, but they were new to the Christian community. They were trying to follow Jesus, and although they were, because they were immature in their faith, these false teachers were targeting them with these heresies. And one of the biggest heresies, maybe you've never heard of this before, but one of the biggest heresies that plagued the early church was a heresy called Gnosticism. And there's a lot of dealing with Gnosticism in the New Testament. And Gnosticism was a lot of different things, but two of the most prominent teachings of Gnosticism was that there is secret extra revelation, that there is hidden knowledge beyond what's been revealed through God's word and what's been revealed through the teachings of the apostles. There's secret knowledge, there's codes to crack, there's a mystery out there. And if you're spiritual enough, you can tap into this secret knowledge and you can actually be more spiritual than everybody else. By the way, that still exists in our American Christianity today. There's still a lot of that. I'm not gonna name any ministries or names, but there's still a lot of that, okay? Be careful when people are promising special, hidden revelation and knowledge apart from God's word. Does God still speak today? He still speaks today. But we also are not chasing after secret knowledge that is held for an exclusive group of super-Christians. We're here to gather around God's word and to say, what does he have to say to all of us? So that was one of the problems with Gnosticism, secret knowledge. Another problem with Gnosticism is that it, it separated, um, this is a little harder to explain, it separated the physical world and the spiritual world to the point where Gnostics believed that the physical world didn't matter. It was just the spiritual world that mattered Christianity teaches us that we're going to have physically resurrected bodies, so this physical world does matter. Christianity teaches us that we were uh, given the um, command by God in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 to rule and reign and have dominion over creation, to take care of God's creation. So this physical world does matter, but Gnostics were saying it doesn't matter. And an interesting thing was happening. What was happening is they're saying, because your body doesn't matter, do whatever you want with it. And it was leading to what they call here twisted sexual desires. Say so it doesn't matter how you use your body because it's not, it's, not what, it's, not what is, it's not that what matters. What matters is your soul and your spirit. So do whatever you want with your body. It doesn't matter. So what was happening here was they were distorting two important gifts that God gives. And I just want to point these out to you. The first is the gift of knowledge. God does give us the gift of knowledge, the gift of intellect. Um, and and it's said in the verse, they brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting. And what that means is that the gift of knowledge that God gave them, they were distorting and twisting into becoming a, a source of arrogance and exclusiveness. See, knowledge is a gift that has been given to us. The knowledge of God, theology, is given to us so that we might worship God, so that we might serve God, and that we might love and serve others. But knowledge is not a gift that God gives us so that we can use it to manipulate other people 
or to prove ourselves superior, to get our way, to overwhelm people with our supposed knowledge or to impress others and ourselves. And I think it's an important reminder here as we're in a message on sin, which aren't you glad you're here this morning for a message about sin? Um, I think it's important for us to remember this morning that the gifts of God, that our talents and our gifts, what you are most known for, what you've worked hardest to be, think about that for a second. What are you most known for? What are your gifts? What are your talents? What, are you, what have you worked hard to be? Those gifts, although God has given them to you, sin wants to distort them, wants to twist them, so that our gifts actually become our identity, and we don't know who we are apart from them. More than our identity being who we are in Christ, our gifts are that we're good at this. We're talented at this. We're appreciated for this, and we're noticed for this. And I was thinking to myself this week, a couple examples from my own life. I, I was just paying attention to, to some things that bother me. And, and, and uh, one of the things that bothers me is, is lame excuses. Anybody else bothered by lame excuses? When I'm asking somebody about something and they give me a bad excuse, a lame excuse, it really bothers me. And, and sometimes it bothers me more than it should. It sticks to me. And I think less of the person and I can't let it go and I can't move forward. And I began to ask myself this week, why does it bother me so much? And I realized as I kind of, as the Spirit was helping me think this through, you know, the Lord has given me some different gifts. I don't have all the gifts, of course, but I have a few gifts. And the Lord has always given me, by his grace, a, a good mind for learning. I've always done well in school, and, and I've always considered myself to be relatively intelligent and able to understand ideas uh, and communicate them. And then also somewhat of a gift of discernment, that I can kind of discern things. I feel like those are two gifts that God has given me, the gift of sort of the ability to understand and to discern. And when somebody gives me a lame excuse, you know why I realize it, it, it makes me so upset? This is, what, this, is what I'm, this is what I'm sensing underneath their lame excuse. They think I'm stupid. They think I can't discern. They think I don't understand. They think I'm not smart. Like, that's actually what's happening under the surface. And then I get so angry and upset with them, and I realize it's because there's a gift that God has given me, and I've attached too much of my identity, value, and worth to that gift. Who cares if someone thinks I'm stupid? I'm in Christ. <laughs> Who cares if somebody thinks I'm not discerning? I'm saved by the grace of God. And those are the things we have to be able to remind ourselves of. Otherwise, we love the gift more than the giver. Let me give you one more example. This is my counseling session with you. Um, I do not like repeating myself. I do not like repeating myself. And I realize that another gift that God has given me is the gift of communication and teaching. And when I have to repeat myself, it's, take, it's like somebody is taking a little knife to my gift. It's like they're saying, you weren't good enough at communicating it the first time. Say it again. I'm like, uh-uh. I said it once. I am not saying it. Again, and this is in work, this is in my home, this is in every area of my life. And it's easy for us just to be like, that's just who I am. But when we realize how sin works, that it distorts God's gifts, we realize there's some things I have to repent of. What if too much of my identity, value, and worth is attached in how people perceive me as a communicator? That's a dangerous place to be because then I get up here on Sunday mornings not to worship God, but to earn your approval, right? So... Pay attention to your gifts, your talents. What are you known for? Make sure that the enemy is not twisting and distorting those things, that it's leading you to sin. And then the second gift that 
Peter talks about here, the gift of knowledge, but then he talks about the gift of freedom. The freedom, freedom today, so we've been given the gift of the freedom of free will, the freedom of choice, right? If you're in Christ, you have freedom to exercise Christian liberties, and there's areas of conscience where Christians don't agree, but that's okay because you have freedom on things that are gray areas, not clearly sin issues. But be careful that the gift of freedom is not distorted into uh, opportunity for personal pleasure and self-expression, even at the expense of God's word. See, true freedom, according to Scripture, is not found in throwing off all restraints, but embracing the right ones. True freedom for a fish is not found in getting onto the land, but in staying within the water, right? And our society today is increasingly defining freedom as the throwing off of all restraints, And I'm not going to go into it, but there's research that is coming out, not just from sort of Christian sources, but from all sources saying, it's not working. This throwing off of all restraints and redefining of all things is creating chaos and crisis in our society. And and, and researchers, I listened to a podcast this week of a non-Christian researcher who's coming to this conclusion that is very much a biblical conclusion about the home. And yet she cannot even give it the credit for being a biblical issue because they're so intent on it not being a moral issue. It's just a functional issue. Be careful that our, the gift of freedom that God gives us is not something that we exercise in a way that actually is sin against him. You know, our, our creative arts team here, our music and media team, they work really hard uh, to do this, the singing, lead us through the singing time on Sundays for the, the slides and stuff like that, and appreciative of them. And I sometimes serve alongside of them. I'll fill in when needed on an instrument. And sometimes we're in the middle of practicing a song, and many times as we're learning a song, there's three or four different versions of the song that have been recorded. And so we've all heard sort of different versions, and we get to the bridge of the song, and we're discussing how should it be played, how should it be sung, and someone might say, well, Hillsong sings it this way, and someone will says, well, Elevation did it this way, and this these are different bands, and this band did it. And we're all kind of discussing, and we all have our opinions, and ultimately Pastor Antonia, as our leader, makes that decision as to which way we're going to go. But I thought, what if the author of the song was in the room? What if the person who wrote the song was in the room? There'd be no debate, no discussion, no listening to me, no listening to this person. No, we would just look at that person and go, how's the song supposed to go? I mean, you wrote it. The Bible says that God is the designer of life and that he has a very specific design, listen, for human freedom and human flourishing. And I just want to suggest that if God is the designer, does he not also have the right to be the definer of how humans will best live free and flourish and accomplish his mandate that he has given to us? Sin is when we settle for far less than what God offers us. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. Sometimes we think temptation is, my desire is too strong. And that is our experience often. But what Lewis is saying here is that in the context of what God offers us, our desires are not too strong, but they are too weak. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of, offer of a holiday or a vacation at the sea. In, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he says, we are far too easily pleased. 
Romans chapter 1, 25 says it this way. We traded the truth about God for a lie, so we have worshipped and served the things that God created instead of worshipping the creator himself. In other words, we've fallen in love with the gifts more than the giver of the gifts. As we head into this Thanksgiving and Christmas season and we give gifts to one another, what a shame if we love the gift more than we love the person who gives us the gift. And yet we do it all the time. We love God's gifts more than we love him. And when we love God's gifts more than we love him, then we begin to allow them to be distorted by sin. William Farley says this, sin destroys everything it touches. It destroys the glory of God. It distorts individual happiness. It corrupts families. It divides churches. It smells and looks good, but it ultimately kills its victim like rat poison. Although sin often brings short-term pleasure, if not atoned for, it will terminate an infinite pain. Peter is teaching us here that sin distorts the gifts that God gives. Even, by the way, the gift of salvation. Peter is addressing something in this text. What he's addressing, I believe, is the danger of false conversion. When he talks about people who kind of have known of the redemptive, righteous ways of God, but turn away from God and how it's worse than them, I think what he's talking about here is that that, uh, he's indicating that those who think they have God but don't have God are less likely to see their need for true repentance. It's like being inoculated to God, having just enough of him to not get all of him. And there are people in our churches who have just enough of God, they've been inoculated to him, but they don't really have all of him. And the way that you don't know, have all, the way that you, know you don't have all of God is that he doesn't have all of you. And Peter indicates here that these people have professed faith in Christ at some point, but since through their life they've proven that their profession of faith was false. It's a counterfeit or a false conversion. We can't even see ourselves right sometimes. Uh, Paul David Tripp says this, sin plays havoc with our spiritual vision. Although we are able to see the sins of others with specificity and clarity, right? We're, we're experts at seeing each other people's sins, right? Especially those who sin differently than we do. We're able to see the sins of others with specificity and clarity. We tend to be blind to our own. And the most dangerous aspect of this already dangerous condition is that spiritually blind people tend to be blind even to their blindness. John Calvin, in his way, said it this way. He says, no one, not a single person, knows even the one one-hundredth of the sin that clings to his or her soul. Sin distorts the gifts that God has given us so that we cannot see our need for him. And then lastly this morning, sin enslaves the human heart. In the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert Piercig describes the old South Indian monkey trap. Uh, It's a trap that consists of a hollowed-out coconut chained to a stake, and the coconut has some rice inside of it that can be grabbed through a small hole. If a monkey would flatten its hand to put it through the hole of the coconut, it could grab hold of the rice. The monkey's hand would fit through the hole, but once the monkey had the rice in its fist, now it was trapped. It couldn't pull back out. The monkey feels physically trapped, but it's not physically trapped. It's an emotional trap. This is the way sin works. We are enslaved by our own sin, by the things that we hold on to, by the things that we won't let go of. And Peter says it so clearly in this verse. He says, you are a slave to whatever controls you. You are a slave to whatever controls you. 
that everyone lives for something. Everyone lives for something. Nobody goes through life without some sort of carrot on a stick in front of them, some sort of vision of a good life before them, some sort of an idea or possibility or future that they're chasing, right? Everyone lives for something, and so whatever you live for has power over you. It, it guides you and it drives you through life. It's your master, and it's really your God, because anything that you have to have has you. One of my favorite quotes that I've shared here at Trinity before is by... Um, an American winning, or sorry, an award-winning American novelist named David Foster Wallace. In 2005, he was giving the commencement address at Kenyon College. David Foster Wallace is not a believer, not a Christian whatsoever, and yet I want you to see and hear what he said about human nature. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. What he's saying is everyone lives for something. Everyone is chasing after something. Everyone is hoping for something. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And what he's about to describe, the Bible calls idolatry. He says if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious things about these forms of worship is not just that they're evil or sinful, it's that they are unconscious. They are our default settings. I think he's right here. The Bible calls these things idols, and idols are good things that we make into God things. Idols are useful things that we make into ultimate things. And you know what our idols do to us? They make empty promises. They make empty promises. If you get me, if you have me, you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. Life will be worth living. You'll move on from your past. Your future will be clear. If you get me, one more experience with me, one more dollar, one more promotion, one more relationship, one more experience, empty promise after empty promise, and they end up distorting God's gifts and his truth, and then they enslave us. And this is how sin works. It lies to us. It twists the truth and then it enslaves us, and we're mastered by it. As Pastor Anzania comes, I know this has not been <clears throat> the most uplifting service so far, or sermon, but I do want to say there's good news, of course. And the good news is right in the passage where Peter says that people, that there are people, this is the phrase he uses, who escape from the wickedness of the world... <laughs> And by the way, that's the wickedness in our hearts as well. How do we escape from the wickedness of this world and the wickedness in our hearts? How do we escape? Peter says, by knowing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. See, we escape sin. We overcome sin. We escape the wickedness in our world and the wickedness in our hearts, not through our own efforts. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't do it through your own good religious activities. You can't do it through going to church enough, reading your Bible enough, giving enough money away. You cannot 
rescue your own heart from wickedness through your own efforts. That's one of the central messages of the Bible. You can't do it in your strength. You do not have the ability, the capacity, the capability, or even the desire to rescue yourself. It's not your goodness that will set your heart at peace with God and that will earn in some way the forgiveness of your sin. It's by knowing, truly knowing, not just intellectually, but experientially knowing Jesus. Every other master will say, you die to have me. You want to serve your career? Well, then work yourself to death. You want to serve your image? Then starve yourself to death. You want to serve control? Then you'll worry yourself to death. Every other master will say, you die to have me. But Jesus, and Peter knew this as well as anyone, came to earth to say, I will die to have you. He's the only God who came to lay down his life to save us from our sin against him. And how did he do it? Well, he did it by living the life that we owe to God. Think about when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness after his water baptism. How did Satan tempt Jesus? He tempted him with empty promises. He tempted him by distorting gifts Hey, you're the son of God. Turn that bread, turn that stone into a bread. You got the gift to do it. Empty promises, bowed me and I'll give you all of this. And then he tried to enslave him as a worshiper. But Jesus, in that moment, he never sinned. Jesus, with his perfect righteous life, secured for you and I the escape from our sins. His life earned the blessing that we desperately need and then he went to the cross where he took the curse. Actually, he became the curse that we deserve for our sin. That's how we escape. Sin makes empty promises. Jesus has kept every single one of his promises. Sin distorts God's gift, but Jesus is the gift of God. He's truly the gift who keeps on giving. Sin enslaves human hearts to destroy them and to make them less than they were created to be. But Jesus is the only master who, if you receive him, he will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, he will forgive you completely. He's the only one that can do that. He's our escape. He's our way out. Aren't you so thankful this morning for Jesus, for who he is and what he's done? Let's pray together.